edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown against TRA, and the citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 51. And this case has its origins back in 1990, when there was a civil war going on in Liberia. And in order to fully understand this case, it is useful to have a brief summary of what went on during that conflict. Throughout the 1980s, the president of Liberia was a man called Samuel Doe. He came to power thanks to a coup and then remained in power throughout the decade thanks to widespread fraud in the national election of 1985. All of this is to say that he was never especially popular, and so it should be considered no surprise at all that, as the decade came to an end, a coup was launched by a former government minister, Charles Taylor, under the banner of the National Patriotic Front of Liberia, or NPFL for short. Thus ensued the Liberian Civil War that lasted through much of the 1990s and is certainly one of the most brutal conflicts in recent history. By way of an example of this, President Samuel Doe was brutally tortured before being executed in late 1990, and later President Charles Taylor is currently seeing out his days in a British prison after being found guilty of a range of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Our case before us today follows on from this as the appellant, TRA, has been charged with seven counts of torture and one count of conspiracy to commit torture under section 134 of the Criminal Justice Act 1988. In order for this charge to be made out, the person has to be a, quote, public official or person acting in an official capacity, end quote. And this is where the dispute at the heart of this case lies. TRA was on the side of Charles Taylor and the MPFL, who were leading the coup. And so the question is, were they acting in an official capacity, because they were the de facto government authority in that region at that time, or was TRA simply an insurgent and therefore not acting in any sort of official capacity whatsoever? The judge in the Central Criminal Court took a rather broad approach to the wording in section 134, and held that in the context of an armed conflict, any individual who acts as part of an authority-wielding entity can be charged with torture. TRA appealed to the Criminal Division of the Court of Appeal, but the justices there actually took the definition slightly further by holding that a person can be charged if they acted on behalf of any organisation that purported to exercise government control over the local civilian population, whether that be in wartime or not. It is with that in mind that TRA now appeals to the Supreme Court in the hope that the charges under section 134 will be dropped. The justices who formed the majority judgment in the Supreme Court began by looking at the origins of section 134, which is not an entirely domestic enterprise. Instead, it comes from the 1984 UN Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. This is important because it means that when it comes to interpretation, we can look to the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties from 1969. In particular, Article 31 of that convention tells us that, quote, a treaty shall be interpreted in good faith in accordance with the ordinary meaning to be given to the terms of the treaty in their context and in the light of its object and purpose, end quote. With that in mind, the ordinary meaning of the provision relating to torture is that while it does not cover private individuals who commit such acts, 
it does go further than only those who are officially working for the state government. This means that the definition also covers those who are exercising some sort of governmental or administrative function. The Supreme Court also considered the context, and so the aim of this 1984 convention was to further strengthen an existing ban on torture. This meant going beyond the actions of government officials, and so it was felt that the actions of rebels, who were the de facto government within a particular region, also fell within the purview of international law. TRA had argued that it was necessary to look at the law associated with state recognition, but clearly this interpretation by the Supreme Court meant that this was not necessary, and indeed getting into the weeds of what does and does not constitute a recognisable state is only liable to cause more confusion. Therefore, the majority reached an interpretation of section 134 that generally matched up very closely with the view taken by the Court of Appeal, and is worth quoting in full. Quote, A person acting in an official capacity in section 134 subsection 1 of the Criminal Justice Act 1988 includes a person who acts or purports to act otherwise than in a private and individual capacity, for or on behalf of an organisation or body which exercises, in the territory controlled by that organisation or body, and in which the relevant conduct occurs, functions normally exercised by governments over their civilian populations. Furthermore, it covers any such person whether acting in peacetime or in a situation of armed conflict. End quote. The key here is that government function requirement. In other words, section 134 would not apply to a small terrorist group that only has military aims and objectives, but would apply to an entity like, say, the Taliban, who control vast swathes of territory. There was one dissenting judgment in this case that came from Lord Reed, and it's worth examining further because of the contrast that it offers. For him, the ordinary meaning of the words is quite different from the definition given by the majority, to the extent that if an individual is part of an insurgent group that is engaged in armed insurrection against the government of a country, then they will not fall within the remit of section 134. How is it possible for these justices to use the same methodology and yet end up at different positions? Well, it seems that this comes down to what the core aim of the UN Convention is believed to be. For Lord Reed, this has a rather narrow scope and only applies to state actors. While the majority are more willing to open this up to groups who act as if they are the state, his reasoning is quite interesting and relies on a more holistic approach to the convention. In particular, Article 2.1 requires state parties to take action with respect to torture in any territory under its own jurisdiction. The problem is that this duty is meaningless if there is no obligation when it comes to territory which is within the state's jurisdiction, but not under their control. To put it another way, Lord Reed was arguing that the overarching aim of the convention was to put more pressure on signatories to take action against torture across their own respective countries, instead of bringing non-signatories into the mix. Another interesting point of interpretation submitted by Lord Reed was the idea that even if the interpretation of the convention had broadened over recent years to incorporate rebel groups that do exercise quasi-governmental functions, that does not mean such an interpretation should be applied to activities that took place nearly 30 years ago 
1990. Furthermore, where there is some question of doubt about the interpretation of criminal law, then it is the more restrictive approach that should be adopted, because in criminal matters there is a risk to a person's liberty. Nevertheless, as we mentioned, that was the single minority judgment of Lord Reed, and so in the end it was the prosecution that prevailed on this point of law. However, it is also important to note that since this case came before the Court of Appeal, there has been further expert evidence adduced relating to the degree of governmental control exercised by the NPFL in Liberia, and so the case will go back down the court hierarchy for this to be considered. For our purposes, we can begin to analyse this decision of the Supreme Court and think about the impact of this interpretation. The contrast between the majority and minority judgments gives us a lot of material to work with, although to be honest, I am not sure that either interpretation is especially convincing, and each has its own weaknesses to contend with. When considering the much broader judgement of the majority, an expansive view of what it means to exercise government control raises a lot of questions about what this precisely means. To use a much more recent example that more people are familiar with, we can consider the actions of Islamic State, who would certainly fall within the definition, as at their zenith they controlled vast swathes of territory in the Middle East, and exercised a great degree of government control over the local population. Over a period of several years, the so-called state grew rapidly from having no territory at all, to controlling land from western Iraq to eastern Syria, and then contracting again to the position we're in today, where there are small camps dotted far away from urban areas. The question then is, at what point did they start their de facto government control? Was it when they started gaining territory? When they took over key cities? When they had a functioning economy? Similar questions can be asked about when this was lost, and Islamic State returned to becoming a purely military outfit. It's not directly relevant to this case, but you can see the sort of problems this interpretation poses for individual accusations of torture under the convention. All of this doesn't make the Lord Reed interpretation perfect either, though, and in many ways the problems are just the other side of the same coin. Recognising the liability of states is fine, but at what point would something like the Islamic State have become an actual state for the purposes of the convention? Is it when it first called itself Islamic State, when it has a certain amount of territory, when other states declared war on it? It might be that some people would never have called it an actual state, but given its size and power in 2015, it feels difficult calling it anything else. In the end, we are unlikely to ever be able to satisfactorily resolve such questions of statehood and government power, and instead I think these decisions tell us a lot more about how the different judges approach international law, and even law in general. This is especially important now because Lord Reed is the new president of the Supreme Court, and while the president isn't seen to lead the court in the same way that the Chief Justice might in the US, it can still give us a hint of what to expect. Anyway, the majority made their position very clear, as they took a strong line that enhanced the prohibition of torture. If this was opposed by Lord Reed, then the natural assumption might be that he is soft on torture, but obviously that is ridiculous and we can do a lot better than that in our analysis. Instead, I think that this tells us that the new president is certainly wary of the reach and influence of international law, and that wider principles such as the protection of liberty, 
and more important than the rather more concrete issues we have seen raised in this case. Whether this is a good thing or not is more a matter of what your own moral standpoint is, and as the Reed Court becomes more established we may begin to see the results, but for the time being this is a fascinating insight into where the new president draws the line. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provides the theme music. Remember, you can visit my website at uklawweekly.com where you can sign up for the newsletter, and at the same time, you get a free ebook as well, so nothing wrong with that. Anyway, I'll be back with a new case next week, but for now, bye!